Hello, hi, and welcome to another episode of The Emma Gunn Show, and it's the beginning of the month. It is the first Monday of the month, so much like the Met Gala, which is the first Monday in May, it's a solo episode that has nothing to do with Met Gala. It just so happens that first Monday of every month is when it's just you and me chatting. And there were so many questions from November's Ask Me Anything episode that there were enough to create a December Ask Me Anything episode, so... In this episode of the Emma Gunn Show, this solo show, I will be answering your questions. So we're back again answering your questions. And I have to say, I do love creating the solo episodes, particularly when we get to deep dive into a particular topic. But I do love it when you send in your questions and because it gives me a sense of what you would like to hear of more on the show. So it helps me decide whether somebody could be a great guest or not. So thank you for everybody who took the time to get in touch with me and send in a question. So the first one, let's get crackalackin', because it's December, you're all busy, I know that you all got a lot, you've all got a lot on your plate, so let's try and breeze through these in a way that's pleasant company uh, wherever you are and whatever you're doing. So the first question is, what is your best beauty product of 2023? And that is a really good question, because this year feels as though it has been a bumper year for some really incredible launches, particularly in the cosmetic arena, where foundations in particular have been launching a plenty. And it has been very hard to find a foundation that hasn't wowed. I think that formulas, pigmented formulas, have just advanced so much in the last few years. And bases, particularly bases that look really natural, are easy to use, give you a lot of bang for your buck in terms of they do something to the skin whilst you're wearing them for the cosmetic element. And by that, I mean formulas that are packed with skincare ingredients, things like niacinamide to smooth and refine, hyaluronic acid to moisturize. All of those really incredible formulas have become incredibly sophisticated. So your skin feels really good for having worn a cosmetic, which if you go back in time, a cosmetic was something that you would wear, but you would potentially pay a price and you'd have to kind of, I don't know, redo any, not damage, but you would just have to really make sure you were taking care of your skin when you weren't wearing makeup. Whereas now the two sort of spaces are very much blurred. And I actually posted a video on Instagram at the weekend, which was my favorite foundations of 2023. And when I first started thinking about it, I thought I'll try and do five. And in the end, I think I couldn't whittle it down to anything less than eight because even though all of them were very, very different, they all had similarities in terms of they were all quite light, medium coverage, which is my coverage of preference. But the delivery system was so different. So there were the blurring powdery serum formulas, like the ones from By Terry and the ones from Clarins, which are new. And there was the stick from Merit, the minimalist, which is genuinely one of my favorite bases because I have to use so little of it to make my skin look amazing and yet it's not heavy and it doesn't take a, it doesn't take a lot of spreading around to things like Shiseido's Revital Essence, which is essentially skincare with pigment, which is just beautiful to wear and feels incredible on the skin. So I would say it's so hard to whittle it down to a particular favorite product, but I would say that the foundation category has really been a fruitful one this year and is one that I have really enjoyed testing all of those products. But I also have to say recently, I wore for the first time a Kylie lip kit. And the first time around when they first launched, I wasn't, I wasn't really engaged with the lip kits because 
I thought they were a bit too young for me. And I also didn't want that kind of big drawn on matte long wear lip. I don't like, I don't think they're comfortable. And I have tried many in the past and I've just resigned myself to the fact that I am somebody who likes to wear a lipstick that I blot or who likes to reapply a sheer sort of glossy colour with, I, I will paint on, I will put on lip liner in the morning and then I will, on top of that, hoping that that keeps some sort of pigment and stain on my lips, I will just keep adding gloss or something sheerer to uh, throughout the day. But the other day I wore the Kylie lip kit in the colour Bite Me and I did some stories on Instagram and the amount of people who said, oh my goodness. And the thing I hadn't even saying it was a flattering colour because it was Bite Me is a really beautiful sort of plummy red. But the thing that was really shocking for me is I put it on with no expectation and I must have put it on about 11 o'clock in the morning and then I got to the end of the day. I must have been doing my Instagrams at about six. So it'd been on for seven hours and it was still absolutely perfect. I'd had coffee, I'd had lunch, I had dinner. I did reapply a little bit after dinner. But other than that, it was the long wear was incredible. So again, those formulas have come on leaps and bounds because long wear lipsticks used to be incredibly drying. I did have to put on a bit more Vaseline on my lips. I always apply Vaseline in quite a thick layer to my lips before I go to sleep every night. And I was aware that in the middle of the night I woke up and I thought, hmm, and I did put on a teensy bit more, but uh, yeah, I didn't pay a huge price for having worn for having worn the Kylie lip kit. So that was really delightful. I love that. Victoria Beckham, Beckham's Vast Lash was probably one of the best mascaras I've ever used. I'm so blown away by how effortless it is and how you. It's got a curved brush. It's packed with an inky pigment and it just separates coats and lengthens every single lash it's like putting on fake lashes I've just and that's exactly the look that I like and I used to be able to get that with a Maybelline mascara but I've not been able to find that I think they discontinued it but Victoria has definitely definitely uh, done really well there and her Kajal pencils are beautiful too they're very sort of jewel toned shades and if you just scribble them onto the lids and then really buff them in they are glorious and they last all day, especially if you're using, so I like using the purple one and the green one and or there's a sort of charcoal one. And if you blend those in and then just use a similar color eyeshadow, just to kind of put a bit of definition in the socket line, it really stops that crease. So I don't have a best beauty product of 2023, as you can probably tell, because I have fallen in love with so many. I not just fallen in love because that sort of is a little bit too personal and subjective but objectively it has been a year of many many surprises and many many delights which has been really nice there have been very few products that have come across my desk where I have been disappointed and actually I will say that in terms of beauty gadgetry which I'm not really into because I think most gadgets tend to just end up gathering dust with wires snaking around things and creating a mess, which I don't like. I don't like the clutter of electrical devices that don't really have a nice, neat place to be stored. But I have been using the current body LED mask now religiously daily for about three weeks because Lindsay Kelk was using hers. And I was like, Kelk, what are you doing to your skin? What treatments have you been having over there in LA? And she was like, girl, it is the current body LED face mask. And I've been using that. And I have to say, I have definitely noticed that my skin looks more even. I'm using far less base. There's me bleating on about foundations, but I have been using far less makeup in order to get my skin to look even as I would like it to look with makeup. So I think that the only thing that has changed is that I am using that LED mask. So 
there we go okay it's still in the beauty realm someone has asked me what's the most embarrassing beauty treatment that you've ever had well I don't know about embarrassing I mean, it depends what your embarrassment threshold is but I for a long time was getting waxing and I was getting bikini waxing and when I started getting bikini waxing I was never really it was it was always quite well, I think it's come on leaps and bounds. And essentially there comes a time where someone asks you to hold your butt cheeks open <laughs> and then a dollop of hot wax is placed in an area. And that I don't know if that's embarrassing, but it definitely didn't feel like a polite thing to do. <laughs> but but I, I used to go to a waxer and my friend used to go to the same waxer. And it got to the point where we would text each other every single time we were in, we were having a treatment. I'd come out and I'd text her immediately. And I just said, five minutes ago, I was face down holding my, my cheeks open. And she was like, every time I do it, I think of you. And every time I had to do it, I would think of her. So it became, became a common thing. But I used to find that quite embarrassing. I used to think, gosh, I hope there's no security camera in here because this is, this is very intimate. This is very exposing. So, but I don't think, I can't think of a beauty treatment that would be particularly embarrassing uh that would no I think that's probably it that's probably it um what is something this is another question again great questions this uh there were so many I'm so glad that we've been able to put it into a second episode what is something that you're doing in 2023 that you weren't doing in 2022 and this one has made me really ponder actually because I think if the answer is nothing then that would be something that I would have to interrogate because I do think that I was reading something the other day about it can sometimes feel like life is going backwards or life isn't going your way but if you're going through something if you're going through struggles if you feel like you're pushing a boulder up a hill actually it's a sign that things are changing and things are moving in the in the right direction so what's something that you were doing in 2023 that you weren't doing in 2022? The biggest thing is that in 2023, I asked for help and I delegated. And these are things that I find incredibly difficult. And this is in the workplace, to be honest. I'm very much, I've been talking to friends about this a lot recently. I'm very much a loner at heart, although I never, or maybe by design, I don't know, but I will, it will take me a lot to ask for help. If I'm asking for help, it means that I, I've got to kind of a, I'm desperate basically. And it was a big thing for me to say, okay, okay, I'm not going to try and do everything myself this year. And that has been a really important, but actually a, I have to say quite a challenging exercise because just because you ask for help doesn't mean you're going to necessarily get the help that you want or the help that you need or the help that's particularly right. It involves trying a few things on for size. And so I would say the biggest thing is just kind of being open in 2023 is something that I perhaps wasn't in 2022. I was I was frustrated in 2022 because I felt as though I was stagnating. I felt I was like, oh, podcast isn't getting any more listeners. I'm not reaching new people. I wish I could get these kind of guests. I like everything's staying the same. And in 2023, I tried a lot of things. Now, did they work? Not really. But I have the experience now of having tried and I have the experience of the disappointment I have the experience of the wins I have the experience of sort of just a learning curve and so I do think that 
enforcing a learning curve is no bad thing. And that is what I think I have done in 2023 that I wasn't doing in 2022. And I think the other thing I have done more of this year than in 2022 actually is give myself a break. Mm. And as I'm saying that, I realize, are you? But I think I have been much better, particularly about physical exhaustion, not so great with mental and emotional exhaustion. But if I am physically tired, I would push through that before. I would say, well, you want to do four workouts this week. So sorry, you can't have to day off because if you have to day off, then you'll only do three workouts this week. So I would push it. Whereas this year, I've been much better about saying, actually, that's not right today. Chill out or do something different. Do something relaxing. Do some do some stretching. So I think it's it's been actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I do think that 2023 has been quite different and it has been because of trying new things and being open. And I don't think that's a bad thing, but I think the experience of trying new things can sometimes be disappointing and it can make you think it would have been better not to do do them. Be, be, it would have been better to, to not try. But I think that would be the wrong lesson to learn from taking a risk, which is essentially what it was. It was taking a risk to try something new. So that, yes, I would say that that is probably the biggest thing. It's not a definitive. I wish I could say, oh, I, I take apple cider vinegar now every night than uh, I didn't in 2022, but that's not true. That isn't true. But the lesson I think for me is that I won't be as scared of trying things as I was previously. In 2022, I was very much, no, I'm going to do it all myself. And I was very closed off to the idea of trying new things because I just assumed there would be failure at the other end. I was like, well, it's better to, better the devil you know, better to stay here than to, it was very much like when you're in a bank, although no one goes to the bank anymore, but when you're in a queue for something and the queue next to you starts moving a little bit quick when you think, shall I stay where I am or shall I get in the queue and see? And you're, you're taking a risk because you have no idea whether that queue is going to continue at the pace that it's going. So this year I got in a different queue and it was good. It was a good learning curve. So if you are somebody who is on the brink of thinking about making some changes, may I encourage you to take the leap? Because I think in the long term, you will be glad that you did. So that's my advice to you. I have been asked the best way to get on the back on the wagon. Now, I can only assume that this isn't uh, the wagon in the way that we talk about the wagon in relation to alcohol, but this is more about fitness goals. Uh, I but like I said, I am absolutely assuming. But I can um, I can understand this question because it's something I would have asked because uh, before I found a normal in inverted commas in terms of how I ate, um, I would fall off the wagon because what I would fall into would be complete disarray and complete disorganization and, and bad habits essentially. So if the question is the best way to get back on the wagon... I would say it's about knowing what normal looks like. And normal, again, is in inverted commas because um, normal is subjective. It, it's relevant for you. But for me, I don't fall off the wagon anymore because a bad day is... If I do slip, because recovery isn't linear or kind of making progress isn't always linear, if I do have a slip or if a day doesn't go the way that I wish it had then I know that the next day, I know what the next day needs to look like in order to come back to normal. But in the past, I didn't have that normal to come back to. So I was sort of flailing. So I think 
not being too strict on myself uh, and not being too strict on yourself if you have fallen off the wagon is think is not to think that the wagon requires perfection not to think that getting back on the wagon means running seven times a week only eating a tiny amount and not drinking alcohol or not going out for dinners with your friends that's what the wagon used to look like for me it was complete abstinence to be completely honest the only way i could be what I thought was good was to be perfect. And my version of perfect was by basically not engaging in anything that might possibly pull me off that path. And a dinner out with friends would, because I would order something I really wanted. And then I'd feel wretched because I knew that that wasn't something I should have necessarily done. Or that's actually the wrong way to say it. I, it didn't align with my goals. And so that one in inverted commas, bad choice would lead to many many other bad choices and then it would be much harder to get back on the wagon so the work I've done and I've talked about it at length on the podcast is about finding a way of living that isn't strict isn't prohibitive isn't restrictive it's not about being on a diet it's just about being aware when you're faced with a choice is this the right thing for me is it not and only you will necessarily know the answers to that based on what you want how you feel and all of those things so I would say if you are somebody who is falling off the wagon, and I say this is somebody who did a lot, until you know what the wagon feels like when it's sustainable, it's going. It's always going to be harder to get back on. So, painting a picture of what that normal looks like and what you can what you can maintain and what you can sustain is the answer. I know that's not. I wish I could just say, well, click your heels together three times and you'll be back on that wagon. It's not as easy as that. So. Um, I would just say figure out that normal. And there's so many episodes of the podcast where I've talked about recovery and sort of finding your feet with things and not overindulging. Um, I would find, I would maybe recommend finding those so that you can find, find something, find a normal for you that doesn't feel stressful because that's the thing. As soon as you can find that, you won't feel so stressed and intimidated by it. Okay. Another question. Would you recommend tweakments? I would. I would, I would, I would, but I wouldn't recommend them to you because I don't know enough about them. But my colleague and friend, Alice Hart Davis runs the tweakments guide and there is no one with a more encyclopedic knowledge of not only the best tweakments out there, but the latest technology, the latest innovations, the best practitioners, all of those things. So the tweaks, the tweakments guides, Alice has been on this podcast a few times. She is an absolute fountain of knowledge and if I ever take that leap which I probably will in 2024 to be completely honest with you because I've I've had a phone call with an esthetician just saying look I'm in a I'm nearly 46 and it's not make or break but it's kind of like it's crunch time a little bit if I want to be preventative um so I'm having a, a consultation in 2024 to sort of see what an esthetician would recommend but I'm not necessarily, I'm not obligated to have anything. And I don't know if I'll, I don't know if I'll decide to go down that road, but any conversation I have with anybody will then be followed up with a conversation with Alice about what she thinks, because she tries absolutely everything. The results can be phenomenal. The results can also just, just be life-changing. And I can only talk from the perspective of a breast reduction, which obviously isn't a tweakment. It's a, that's a proper surgery, but it impacted my confidence in a way that I can't even begin 
can't even begin to explain the the way that I used to sort of hide myself, shy away from doing, I don't know, all sorts of things because I'd be so embarrassed about how big my boobs were. And also, as we know, the size of my body, which was something that I managed to repair, repair without major surgery, unlike the breasticles. But um, tweakments can be so subtle, so effective, but also really boost one's confidence. So I'm all for them. I just think you have to be really careful and mindful about what you want. And one of the things that I said when I was speaking to the doctor I was having a chat with recently is I said, the thing for me is that I see a lot of people who have a lot of treatments and I don't want to fall into the trap of having one thing and then having another and having another and then distorting my appearance because I always think that's a little bit sad and I don't think we need to name names but we can think about people in the public eye who have had a little bit you can and you then they've had a little bit more and then they sort of stop looking like themselves they look like a sort of puffed up version of themselves and they were it was really interesting they were saying it's actually a known uh it's a known thing it's called perception drift and it's when your perception drifts and you lose your recollection and sense of what your baseline was and so you keep adding and keep adding and you add too much so I think it's really vital if you are starting on any of these things to be mindful of that and also really be clear about what your expectations are and even this sounds really judgy of me and maybe it is but I was in my local coffee shop the other day and the girl in front of me I mean she looked about 18 but I'm an old woman now so she was probably in her 20s I've got that perception drift of other people's ages because everybody who sort of looks a bit bouncy, I just think is newly 20. But she she and her friend, they both had really noticeable lip filler. And I thought, I can't believe you had that on your first visit. It, obviously, you're a few years down the line here where you had your first lip filler, then you've had more and you've had more. And it was so obvious. And they were both beautiful girls, don't get me wrong, but I just thought I could see that perception drift in action because the lip, their lips were really quite big and in a way that didn't look natural. They looked like puffed up, artificially enhanced lips. And I wouldn't want to ever have somebody look at my face and say, that's been artificially enhanced. I don't think that's what you are aiming for when you go into an esthetician's office to have a tweakment or to have any kind of aesthetic work done. You don't want somebody to come out and say, oh, you look, you look as though you have been enhanced in some way. You want somebody to say, wow, you look really well. And that means that the work has to be somewhat invisible or imperceptible, but sort of perceptible, but not anyway. So I would recommend tweakments. I just think one has to do one's research. Um, paying a bit more is sometimes absolutely appropriate. Checking people's credentials, checking people's before and afters, checking word of mouth, like you thinking about it, having a consultation, going away, thinking about it. All of those things are really important. So I would say, first of all, check out Alice Hart Davis on Instagram and also check out the treatment guides. And then this is a supplementary question, which was, what are your thoughts and advice on fillers and Botox? I've had them in the past and I want to know whether I should continue. Only you can really make that decision. And it depends how how much you're having how often and whether you like the results if you like the results and you have a good sense of your baseline then absolutely continue but if you've had it and you're not that fast let it wear off 
I have friends who let all of their work wear off as much as possible. Fillers is a slightly different thing, but they let their Botox completely wear off before they go and have anything topped up so that they come back to their baseline. And I think that's really good advice. I think that's really sound, actually. So maybe if you're asking the question, should I continue, should I continue? maybe uh, the answer is yes, but maybe wait for a bit and then see how you feel about what you want to do. Um, this is an interesting question. What's your biggest current challenge or goal and how are you navigating to overcome or achieve it? I think truthfully it's taking time off and it's become really apparent to me this year that I don't know how to and part of it is about I don't I don't particularly want to go traveling by myself or go away on my own I will go and visit friends in other countries but um, that's not really holiday in the sense of sitting on a sun lounger for two weeks and completely switching off and reading 18 books it's kind of a doing holiday. So I think it's about, it's the restful element. And the other thing is that I'm just always connected to work. And one of the big things is always being on social media. Now I have to be on social media because it's how I promote the podcast. It's how people know what I'm up to. It's how I talk about brands and products and get, get uh, on the radar of the people that I want to be working with. It's a really important part of my job. But even if I go on recreationally, if I see somebody that I know who's doing something, I think, well, that's really clever. Or if I stumble across something that's work adjacent, then I start thinking. And then before I know it, I'm up at two o'clock in the morning on the computer thinking, oh, maybe I should sketch out this idea or maybe I should do something like that. So that's why this month, so December, well, not, yes, December 2023, I've actually decided to delete my social media apps. <laughs> And I'm saying this genuinely not really knowing how I'm going to do this or how that's going to look because I'm going to be out and about a little bit in December um, and I'm not, going to I'm not going to be documenting anything. I will be taking pictures, but I'm going to actually delete my social media apps from my phone. But what I am going to do is keep some sort of a vlog. I think I'm going to film using my vlogging camera. And maybe I will document what that has felt like on YouTube in January once the blackout is over. But I need to understand what it's like not to be plugged in all the time because I have been plugged in constantly, especially over lockdowns. I was constantly, constantly on my phone, constantly engaging with people and chatting on my phone. And I think it's really healthy for me now to take a, a step back. I really do. But I'm really scared. <laughs> I really don't know how that's going to feel and I know it should just be easy it should just be to just delete the apps off your phone but I don't think I fully understand how much of a reflex it is for me to just pick up my phone and um <laughs> just scroll mindlessly just scroll mindlessly and also most evenings I fall asleep listening to a podcast I put my podcast app on a timer so I am constantly plugged in and consuming something even when I'm not fully awake and that's that I think isn't healthy which is why I think it's important that I take this social media break in December but don't worry there'll be no interruption to podcasts and I'll I will be scheduling some social media content so that I won't be I won't have a complete blackout otherwise you won't know necessarily that podcasts are being published but that's probably the thing it's the social media uh, deleting the social media apps is one thing but actually it's about beginning to 
build the muscle of rest of it's okay to unplug it's okay to take a break which I've never really uh, leaned into as somebody who is self-employed I just I just never have so there we go um another question this is great in your adult life what experience book or person has had the greatest impact I would say a few years ago I had Jen Sincero on the podcast and she wrote a book called You Are a Badass and the truth is I don't know whether that book would necessarily resonate with me in the same way now but at the time and I think this is 2016-2017 I wasn't in the greatest of (laughs) I wasn't at my best let's just put it that way and I, f- I was very much creating a story in my head of I'm a loser and I was being very hard on myself and I was expecting that everything that I did would be rubbish and would fail miserably. And so I was kind of, it was kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy and everything was sort of harder than it needed to be. I was not making any money and I read her book <clears throat> and it just it just made me reframe. It just made me think about things in a different way and essentially assign hope (laughs) to potential outcomes. And it was really, really helpful. And the other thing it helped me do was build the muscle of no. And I think I, I will have said this before on the podcast, but I remember at the time I was doing a lot of work for a lot of brands in the social media space And there were some really, really difficult, difficult brands who just made it harder than it needed to be and were micromanaging me. I was consulting, so I wasn't a member of the team as such. I wasn't a salaried member of the team, but I was consulting. And so they kind of weren't particularly nice or decent or professional. And it just felt like every day it was like, oh, I've got to deal with these pricks again. And it just felt like, oh, for the money that they're paying me, it's just not worth it. And I started saying no even though that was a bad idea because there were bills to pay. But actually by saying no to the stuff that was really difficult, it opened up for other things to kind of come in and for me to be open to saying yes to other opportunities. And that was really, really helpful. And I I kind of developed that skill from reading Jen Sincero's book. And so I do think that that is, uh, I would say that book had a massive, massive impact on me. And then from that, that kind of steered the the tone of the podcast for a while in terms of personal development, getting people on the show who had overcome adversity, getting people on the podcast who didn't take no for an answer, who weren't going to be a victim of their circumstance, who were going to make it no matter what. And that, so it kind of had a snowball effect. And I really, really love that that book appeared in my life when it did, because it definitely had a huge impact so Jen and Jen's been on the podcast a couple of times and there was one time I think the second time she came on I just desperately wanted to cry and say oh my god you have no idea how much you the difference you made to my life but she didn't seem to be that kind of person who she kind of like that's your own thing you deal with that on your own I don't need to hear that which I actually it's like when I had Gillian Michaels on the podcast and she was saying that she'll often get messages from people saying, oh my God, you changed my life because people have followed her routine. They've taken her nutritional advice. They've taken her lifestyle advice and they've, they feel better than they've ever felt and they're in great shape. And she says, I mean, I'm really happy that I said what I said, and it, but you were the one who went out and did it. So I kind of think Jen comes from a, a, a similar place, which, um, 
It was really nice, but it was nice to speak to her. So I will put the links to those episodes in, in the in the show notes because I think they were really wonderful episodes. And she's she's got she talks a lot of sense. Right, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back to finish up these lovely questions that you have very kindly sent in. Okay. This is a really important question, perhaps the most important question of this entire episode. Dear Emma, I am a complete Taylor Swift virgin. Where should I begin if I want to enjoy Taylor Swift in the way that you clearly do? (laughs) Well, I have to be honest, I enjoy Taylor, but I am not a Swifty in the way that many people are Swifties. I do not understand the uh, the, the entire canon in the way that someone like Lindsay Kelk does. I enjoy her music. I think she's an incredible lyricist. I enjoy how some of the songs are interlinked. I enjoyed the meaning behind some of the songs, but I mean, some, some people know forensically the ins and outs and the whatever's of, I mean, there's a lot of Easter eggs in her songs. There's a lot of hidden meaning. There's a lot of things like, imagery in certain videos that imply that something else is coming. And I personally can't keep up with that. I know that sounds terrible, but I really can't. But I really enjoy the way that Taylor writes songs. And I think Taylor, much like Dolly Parton, Dolly Parton, whose back catalogue of music is, I think, more extensive than someone like Mozart or Beethoven. These are these are prolific songwriters who are able to capture human experience in songs that are really wonderful to sing and dance along to, which is an incredible talent. And I do think one of the reasons why Taylor has such a devoted fan base is because she's able to make people feel emotions through her songs that perhaps they don't feel in real life. Some they do, some they don't. But I think I've never gone out with potentially Jake Gyllenhaal and had my heart broken by Jake Gyllenhaal but I kind of feel like I know what that's like because I've listened to all too well both versions many many times and I've been on that emotional roller coaster so it's taken me to a place that I've been able to imagine if you don't know the backstory all too well it was a song from the album Red and it is supposed to be about Taylor's relationship with Jake Gyllenhaal the actor Jake Gyllenhaal They had a significant age difference. She was quite young. He was a little bit older. And um, by all accounts, her heart was broken. And then when she re-released Red, she recorded the 10-minute version, which was apparently the original version that then had to be edited down for for, for its first appearance on Red. And that kind of gave a little bit more detail. And it was just, you know, you got to experience what it was like to have a tumultuous relationship with a Hollywood actor without actually having that relationship. So I think that's why Taylor is so popular, because she allows you to channel emotions from experiences that perhaps you haven't had, but that you can, I don't know, identify with. So where should you begin? I would say at the beginning, but actually I don't know as if that's the best advice, because the beginning is quite a while ago now, and it's quite country. And although it's wonderful, I think that uh, one has to enjoy Taylor's more recent work if you are coming in now before you can go back and enjoy the early stuff. So I would go onto Spotify or whatever music it is that you music platform that you use and just find a playlist of the best singles and just start playing those and you will be toe tapping along before you know it. (laughs) That's what I'll say. Okay, this is this is related. Maybe Taylor Swift has sent this question in. The question next is, I know you love Skims, but do you ever feel uncomfortable supporting such a grotesquely rich family? And that is a really good and a really fair question. 
So yes and no. Yes, because it seems repugnant that a single family can accumulate so much wealth so quickly and it just is an empire that just continues to grow and does one want to feed into that by putting more money into the ecosystem of the Kardashians but equally I think we have to remember that many businesses companies families organizations have have experienced exactly the same sort of thing over the years but what the kardashians don't have is any kind of veil over it it's all very public we've seen them go from wealthy to grotesquely rich i mean people who can buy a fleet of bentleys and have them color-coded to their home i mean it's a lot people who are flying private jets around i think that's why side note the reality show the kardashians has lost me because every single thing that they are talking about in all of those episodes is completely unrelatable i can't relate to kim and courtney fighting over having weddings in italy because very few people really can afford destination weddings on those scale on that scale so for them to be having a fight about it or to be fighting about who's more dolce than my dolce vita life like it, I can't, I can't relate to it, and don't don't make me. I can't relate to the stresses of the Met Gala because it, it's not my experience. So they they are losing me a bit. So that's my no side of it. But my yes, I also don't think they're corrupt. I think that their businesses seem like they're legitimate. I'm not saying that they're amazing people and nice people and kind-hearted people. I'm just saying that they are legitimate businesses, and there are plenty of plenty of people out there who are not legitimate uh who are doing very very well thank you very thank you very much um and by that i mean the big corporations who like find the loopholes not to pay taxes and things like that which has a massive impact on then the economy but anyway um but the the yes of it is that it's undeniable i really fought the skims pull for such a long time but my friend lisa potter dixon always talked about them and said how great they were and so i just i dabbled with a freaking like bra like a bralette and a bodysuit and it was like oh no these are so good these are so comfortable these feel so nice oh they wash so well and i can't argue with a great product i cannot argue with fantastic quality and i also am measuring it up against other brands and it's better so on the one hand i do have that discomfort to answer the question directly about supporting such a grotesquely rich family. I also admire the fact that they have accumulated such wealth via savvy business enterprise, but I, I simply can't, I, I can't choose a lesser product because of, of, of stuff. So I understand why people hate them. I understand why people can't get on board with them. I find them really entertaining I don't think about them too deeply, but I do think their products are great quality. And therefore, I mean, my whole thing as a journalist, particularly as a journalist who recommends products in the beauty space and fashion space, I am always going to think about a longevity of a product or whether you're going to get your banger for your buck. I'm always thinking about people's money. And so for that reason, I can't argue with skims and the offering. So ultimately, um, I would rather be putting money into their ecosystem than um, fast fashion, which is really terrible and awful. So 
that's how I feel about that. But how do you feel about that? Because that seems to be a question I think a lot of people feel uncomfortable about how wealthy they are, which is an interesting topic in itself. But I know some people don't buy skims because of how they feel broadly about the family. I'll be interested to know what you think. Email me. Okay, this is another really... I, I've had this a few times over the years, but um, this has come up for this particular Ask Me Anything. So the question is, I want to read Brain Over Binge because I know I have issues with food and a lot of what you've said about food taking up a lot of mental brain space on your podcast has really resonated with me, but I'm terrified I will read the book and it won't have the same effect on me. And I completely, completely understand this. And I actually probably had a similar feeling when Alex Light first recommended the book to me a few years ago because well first of all I just was insulted that she thought I binged because I was so in denial but there was also that feeling of what if I read it and I don't what if I read it and I don't feel any different what if I read it and doesn't have any impact on me so I totally totally get this and I think a lot of it has to do with where you are mentally and emotionally when you read it how fed up you are with your situation how open you are to being really honest with yourself about your relationship with food and what's really going on and so I think if the idea of the book intimidates you and you think that that means that you won't be open to it then it probably is to just let it sit on the bookshelf for a little while longer. I know a lot of people have said to me over the years, I bought the book when I listened to this episode and it sat on the shelf for a long time because I couldn't bear to pick it up. I was too intimidated. I was too scared. And then I eventually did. There was one day when I kind of reached rock bottom where I just thought I can't do this anymore. And I picked up the book and like you had a really positive, it had a really positive impact on me. But I've also had people message me saying, I read your book as soon as I finished that episode and nothing. I thought it was rubbish. I didn't really get it. So I think it totally depends on where you are, what you're open to and whether you are ready to, like it's a big thing, it's a bitter pill to swallow to realise that you haven't been well because an eating disorder is, you're not well. And it's really tough. It can be really confronting to face the fact that you haven't been well. You've been battling something that you perhaps didn't even realize you were battling. And yeah, that now's the time to to face up to it and take action. And that action can feel really intimidating. So it's a very, very hard one to answer. But I would just say that you're not alone. I know many people who have had a similar reaction and who have picked up the book, put it down again, picked up the book, put it down again. So... I would say you know yourself really, really well. Listen to your gut. Your gut will tell you when the right time is to pick up the book. And it's when you can give it time. It's when you can give it attention. It's when you can do a little bit of further reading. It's when you can really, really pay attention to what's going on. And sometimes that isn't actually when you buy the book. It sometimes comes a little while later. So think think about whether it's going to upset you to open Pandora's box or whether you're you're okay to kind of pull at that thread that's the best advice I can give you I think has anybody listening read the book and had a great experience with it or read the book and had an indifferent experience with it I think we should talk about that in the Facebook group because I think that would be really interesting to get a sense of the different experiences that people are having with the book okay gosh we're rushing to the end here okay I want 2024 to be the year I stop being lazy. This is another question. So I want to start going to the gym and I want to start eating well. Do you have any tips? 
this sounds quite like what I was talking about earlier, about 2024, you've already put a layer of I've got to be perfect because the vocabulary, I want to stop being lazy, I want to start going to the gym and eat well. Just little changes. And the best I can say about this is, well, there's two things really. There's a timeline. And I think it's so tempting to say I want to do this and so you want the timeline to be really short because you want to get from A to B really really quickly so you want to be exercising uh, eating whatever it is that you want to be eating that you think means that you're eating well and stop being lazy and it, you, it could be really tempting to think so I'll start on January the 1st and okay it'll take a few weeks but actually that's such a steep steep timeline it's so hard to do something like that and also it's going from one thing to another overnight and that's where it's really hard to sustain things so my biggest tip would be to say extend that timeline think okay 2024 is going to be the year that I stop being lazy and start going to the gym and I eat well that's the way that this listener has described it but what if you say okay well 2024 is 12 months so by the end of 2024 I will have built up all of those habits every month I would have done something that gets me closer to the thing that I want to get away from. No, <laughs> that's not right. Gets me closer to the thing that I want to be and further away from the thing I want to get away from. And it can start off with one trip to the gym a week. And, and then by the end of the year, it can be you're going at a more regular pace. I think don't make massive changes all at once. That would be my advice. And I was talking to somebody who actually is in business and has gone in to go and really make some positive changes to a company. And uh, she's, we were talking about it. I said, well, you know, we were talking about the fact that actually this business has got some quite significant changes that need to be made. And it's really obvious if you go in that this should stop. And these, there are some things that it would be useful to stop immediately. But she said, it's just a 1% change. You make 1% change, see how that lands. And then you make another 1% change, see how that lands. Make another 1% change, see how that lands. Until eventually these tiny little incremental changes everybody gets on board with and then you can make bigger changes. But if you go in and you try to make a massive change right at the beginning, you'll, you only come up against friction. But it's really frustrating, especially if you can see the place that you want to get to and you know that all you would have to do is these things but actually they're not easy to implement immediately so one percent change don't expect 2024 to be perfect from january the first set yourself a, a, a sort of expectation of by december the 31st it will look the way that i want it to look which means i've got 12 months to install little changes every month or every week or every fortnight whatever it is that would be my best advice don't try and make huge big changes in lots of areas of your life overnight because that's just annoying and frustrating and if it means that you end up failing or your version of failing you might end up feeling down on yourself which isn't really fair another question here is i'm thinking of getting some dumbbells so i can work out at home any suggestions for what weight i should start with i love this question because this is a question i asked when i was doing the ec method because i know i needed to get some heavier dumbbells and i remember saying in the Facebook group, should I get 7.5 kilograms or 10 kilograms? And they were like, babes, we can't tell you what, what dumbbells to lift because it depends on what you can lift, <laughs> which is a very fair point. So I would say if at the moment you are at a starting level, you could use a two liter bottle of <clears throat> two liter bottle of drink. And if that would give you a little bit of resistance, then great. 
or you could start really, really low. I think the worst thing to do would be to start too heavy. So go into a sports shop and just pick up some dumbbells and see what you can do. See how many reps you can do with a dumbbell and go for something that challenges you, but that you are capable with i would say but i would also say follow emma story gordon and chloe madeley and potentially sign up to the ec method because they they talk so much sense and the community and that facebook group are so so excellent and they will quickly tell you whether you need a specific dumbbell or what weight you should be aiming for but honestly there's nothing wrong with body weight to begin with it's like i said about the one percent changes if depends what you depends where you're at now but you can do so much with body weight before you even start. You could even use resistance bands before you start something like dumbbells. So think about where you really are. I know that we've got this idea in our head that fitness looks like doing loads of bicep curls or using heavy weights in the gym, but it depends where you're starting from. And if you are completely new to any kind of lifting, it starts with body weight and you can you can move up from there. And I've got a kit that I travel with. It's a really sexy kit that I travel with, which is just resistance bands. And I can make my lunges a, a bit harder. I can do bicep curls by standing on the resistance band and then using the tension to do... Like I can do all of that without needing uh, dumbbells, which are expensive and take up a lot of room. I've got several pairs in my living room slash gym. So I would think about where you are before you start adding big expensive bits of kit in and maybe think about resistance bands to begin with because that will also give you a really good sense of what you're capable of use those for a bit see what kind of progress you make and then maybe think about dumbbells um but i can't tell you what weight what weight to start with i'm really really sorry okay penultimate question are you still getting up early now this is a question off the back of the 5am club so uh, last year i did 5am wake up times i think it was in the summer of course it was in the summer because it was light And I loved it. I really, really enjoyed it. And ultimately, I was enjoying it. I found it harder in the winter. And then it just didn't really vibe. And I so I changed my wake up time to 6am. So I have been getting up with my alarm at 6am pretty much consistently for about a year. And then recently, when the clocks changed and the weather got really, really... um, really bad (laughs) really sort of the well the weather got really cold and it got very very dark in the mornings I'm now finding it a real struggle to get up at six o'clock I still wake up at six o'clock but I normally sort of sit and lie in bed sit and lie in bed just lie in bed and think about getting up for a little while and then I move a lot slower than I normally do and again that's because it's the end of the year I'm a bit knackered and it's far less appealing getting out of bed when it's chilly and it's also completely pitch black outside so what I tend to do is kind of slowly get up normally around seven o'clock I'm sitting on the sofa I'll do my meditation I'll drink my coffee the sun well not the sun but it will begin to get a little bit lighter and then that's when I'll work out so my days are starting a, a lot later actually than they used to um but then if I have to get up early, I get up early, but I'm finding it much harder. I'm finding that it's much more natural for me to get up at seven. But um, I had a lie in the other day and I hated it because I just don't like being that stagnant. So seven o'clock is a sweet spot for me at the moment. But as soon as as soon as we get to January and it does, the nights start getting longer, because they will after the 21st of December, I want to switch back to 6am because I just feel that for me is when I'm at optimum productivity is when I'm getting up at six and I'm I'm getting the day started but I do find a lot of friction when the weather and the light particularly isn't in my favor 
So the answer is no. Are you still getting up early? Seven o'clock still quite early, but it's not as early as five and it's not as early as six. But I'm working my way towards after Christmas. I'm giving myself some, giving myself a bit of leeway at the moment. After Christmas, it will be like, it will be back to six a.m. But right now it's seven. Okay, final question. Gosh, you've asked some excellent questions in this episode. Thank you so much, everybody. So the question is, I really respect your journey with coming to terms with food issues, but I am disappointed you advocate for calories. It makes me think you've ultimately bought into diet culture, so it's less of a recovery and just another type of disorder. Now, obviously, I don't love reading that, but this isn't the first time somebody has said something similar, so I think it's worth addressing. So... I have said before that friends of mine who have recovered from restrictive eating disorders look at my tactics for recovery and think, oh my gosh, that's an eating disorder. Likewise, I look at their coping mechanisms for their, some of their coping mechanisms, not all obviously, for recovery from restrictive eating disorders. And for me, they're real triggers because I think if I was doing that, that would be indicative of me falling back into binge eating or into whatever it might be. So I just think we have to agree that everybody's recovery looks different. Calories might be really unhelpful for some people, but for me, A, they're a free metric, they're on pretty much every food packaging, and they just give you a sense of whether something fits into your nutritional plans for the day. I don't necessarily have a calorie limit. I pay a lot of attention to macros. I eat a lot of protein because protein is so, so vital, particularly at my age now, entering perimenopause. The more muscle I have on my body, Gabrielle Lyon talks about it all the time. It's so, so important. So I focus a lot on resistance training and protein so that I have muscle mass, essentially. So calories aren't the important element But at the same time, back when I was really trying to figure out my relationship with food and get back onto something resembling (sighs) normal, such a bad word, but my normal, something that wasn't unhelpful, a way of eating that wasn't unhelpful, I found calories a really, really useful metric because I wasn't good at portion control previously. And calories allowed me to understand what was reasonable and rational for my body, for my body's needs. And so I understand why some people find them triggering, but I don't believe they are. The only reason in the past that I've ever not liked calories is because always, they always told me something I didn't want to know, which was that I was eating too much. I would track my calories for a day and I'd be like, well, it's telling me I've had 800 more calories than I should. Ooh, I hate calories. So I stopped having that reaction to them, stopped having that relationship to them and thought, okay, well, how can I use calories and then subsequently macros to get the most out of what I eat, to make me feel good? And also to eat in a way that doesn't trigger any kind of binging. And calories were really helpful for that. And so I don't think I've bought into diet culture. I don't think I have a disorder. I think I'm in a recovery. And obviously opinions will vary. Recollections may vary, as Buckingham Palace once famously said. But I, for me, it's been really helpful. But I completely understand why somebody who has a more restrictive issue with food would see some of the tactics that I use as being a trigger for them. But likewise, I see some of the recovery tactics for people who are recovering from restrictive eating disorders as things that I just simply know that I couldn't do. It's why I can't align with the body positivity movement in the way that, um, not in the way that I would like, but because 
if I had celebrated my body when it was plus size, I would have been celebrating self-harming and self-sabotaging with food because I was over-consuming in almost like a daze and in a way that was it was not... If you looked at it, you would have said, woman, you're not well. Obviously, I hid it. I hid it. So I can't align with the body positivity movement in that way because I couldn't celebrate what I'd done to my body because it was self-harming. Um, but that's not to say it's not right for other people. But I also think, as I've said many times before on this subject, it's very personal, it's very emotional, it's very subjective. And as much as you can state your case and your position, I don't expect any, I don't expect to make that make people agree with me because I know that I'm not speaking to somebody who's had the same experience. So I know I can only speak my experience. And if it somehow chimes with someone else, that's great. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But it's it's no biggie. But I talk about my weight issues, my body image issues, and my food issues in the way that I do, in order to find the people who have had a similar or are having a similar experience to me, who would like to free themselves from the kind of torturous relationship I had in my head about food and my body before. Because if by being open about my experience, I can help somebody else unlock themselves from theirs, well, that would be flipping amazing. Right, I'm going to let you guys go because it is the festive season. I'm sure you're getting blinged up for a Christmas party or you are, what else might you be doing? Getting ready for the office Christmas party perhaps or doing some Christmas shopping or maybe you are like me and your favourite way to listen to podcasts is when you are wearing a face mask, wearing rubber gloves and doing the housework. Or maybe you're out for a nice walk. And if you are, I hope that you've had some lovely fresh air and haven't been rained on. But thank you so much for everybody for listening. Thank you for sending in these questions. I love the variety and I hope that you are happy with the answers. If it means that you would like to ask me anything else, you know how to do that. All you have to do is email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com or you can DM me on Instagram and Twitter where I'm at Emma Guns. But my favourite place to chat to you is the Facebook group. So please come over there, start a thread ask a question i will get back to you but there are some brilliant people in the group who will also perhaps answer and offer some insight so it's a great space a lovely community of people so come 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 and join the links to everything are in the show notes thank you so much for listening i will see you on the next one <laughs>